Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and also the main protagonist for this show. This is going to be a conversation that I had with Lou Drake uh, back in December um, all about leadership in the social sector. Lou is one of the directors for the Claw Social Leadership Programme, which is a brilliant programme. If you work in charities and social enterprises, um, I'm sure you'll, you'll have heard of Claw, but really good programmes to uh, help develop leaders in those sectors and uh, to enable those people to share ideas, share stories, share uh, good practice, all that sort of thing. So um, this is a really nice conversation. It was at the RSA in London. And um, really, I mean, as you'll see, it's quite a casual fireside kind of chat uh, between Lou and myself. If you've followed me for a while, you might know that the early part of my career was in the charity sector. But I think I was very conscious when I was having this conversation that I was also recording it. So I, I, I did my best to try and make it as applicable to people in all sectors as possible. And I think it really is. So um, I think this is particularly timely for for right now, too. I think it's, you know, it's an interesting period that we're in. And it feels to me like the most uh, important thing to do during this period is to allow ourselves the chance to take stock. And I think some of the reactions that people are having, myself included, is all about uh, rushing towards busyness, right? So it's no coincidence that my garden is tidier than it would have been if this wasn't going on. And I've actually painted the deck in my garden, which I don't usually get around till till about August and uh, lots of stuff like that. And I think there's this kind of sense that if we keep ourselves, keep ourselves busy, then it means we can kind of avoid the more existential questions. And whilst I have been painting my deck, I have been doing a lot of thinking about more existential questions actually in the last couple of weeks. And I think if you don't feel like that, I think it would be a really good um, invitation right now to explore that. So if you are trying to create structures and routines and keep busy and to learn new skills and all, all of that sort of stuff or binge Netflix, then I would wholeheartedly invite you to put some of that stuff down and create some space and think more about your values and your purpose and where you want the next few years to go for you. I think that's certainly um, a lot of the conversations I'm having with myself and with a few other people. And it just feels like a natural uh, pause point right now. And so when that's forced upon us, I feel like it's um, our duty to to pick up that baton and actually pause and actually think and um, treat it as a gift. So um, I hope that's helpful just as a little uh, intro to the show. Uh, if you are interested in the stuff that Think Productive is doing around this, then you can find out more at thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH, thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH. Uh, we've created a couple of new workshops. Uh, one is called Leading Remote Teams. And again, really focuses in on, on values and purpose. And, um, you know, I feel like the way that we behave in a crisis is much more reflective of who we really are than the way we behave in regular everyday life. Uh, so that goes for companies as, as much as it does for individuals. And I think it's a really interesting chance to... Uh, really learn about who we really are and also uh, project some of that in terms of who we really want to be too. So um, yeah, Leading Remote Teams is one of the new sessions that we've um, written particularly to help our clients. And um, we've also been doing these free webinars, the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Working from Home. Um, you'll find the dates for the future ones on that web link. So thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH. Those are completely free sessions. They've been booked out and full up and we've just been just putting as many dates um, in front of us as a road ahead of us as possible, um, but really just giving our, our best productivity advice that relates particularly to some of the challenges around working from home. So if you want to get involved in that, 
then uh, yeah, thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH. But yeah, it felt like the right sort of time to release this one. Um, lots of stuff around values in here, lots of stuff around um, leadership and just some of the things that have motivated me. And so I'm kind of sharing this one now as hopefully uh, the best possible chance that it has to kind of hit the spot for you. So hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it interesting. And um, I hope you don't get too sick of it being mainly just my voice. Although Lou asked some really great questions through this as well. So um, it's a nice little conversation. And I think we should get Lou on Beyond Busy and flip this the other way around and me interview her. So um, yeah, we'll do that at some point. So let's get into it. It's early morning. I uh, have done my usual thing when I'm doing uh, any client gigs in London now, which is that I travel up the night before stay in a hotel because I don't trust the trains. And I've had a couple of times where I've been caught out by trains and ended up, uh, well, once I had to pay £200 for a minicab, <laughs> which was just ridiculous. But it was the only way to get me there on time. And I hate letting people down. So I just paid it and felt, you know, slightly begrudging and paid it through gritted teeth. But yeah, uh, so I basically travelled up the night before and this is early morning in the RSA, just off the Strand in London. So here is my conversation with Lou Drake. So I want to introduce Graham as um, the person who actually introduced me to leadership in the first instance. So my first ever leadership programme that I went on, when I don't even want to say how old I was, because we've known each other for quite a long time, when I was involved in the world of student volunteering, was a leadership programme that Graham um, designed delivered, developed with his team at Student Volunteer in England. Um, and again, I think for me that was uh, a really important insight into the importance of leadership in whatever role that you have. You know, we were relatively young group of people um, working in the world of student volunteering and um, super inspired. I think that's when I kind of, then whatever Graham did after, really kind of, um, yeah, stuck up you know productivity ninja all those things because what we learned on that program was really powerful really transformational for the way that we worked and that group of people that i met at that time so graham he is the founder of think productive he is the author of the best-selling global best-selling book productivity ninja who's got it hands up in the room yeah and actually global organization think productive it is global um and podcast beyond busy and some other books that you may want to tell you about, too. So, without further ado, I'm going to take a seat and I'm going to um, ask Graham my first question. So, I want you to tell us a little bit about your leadership journey. Um, give us an overview of the roles that you've had. Um, and what I'm particularly interested in is in those leadership roles, how you got to your kind of think productive um, organisation and, and get into the place where productivity was something that you decided to focus on? Yeah, so the potted quick career history was I, so I started off in social sector, uh, had no idea what my career was supposed to be when I was at university, studied sociology. Uh, would always go into the careers department of the university and say, I want to work for a charity. And they'd go, do you want to volunteer with Oxfam? And I was like, oh, sort of, it's kind of hoping to get paid, really. You know? <laughs> um, and so the university career services were not really set up uh, for me, but I was doing a lot of student volunteering. So I ended up falling into, I was there in the student union so much, doing leadership of uh, kids' adventure programmes for 8 to 11-year-olds in the holidays, that when a job came up in the student union, it just kind of felt the most natural thing for me to do. And I've been around the place and people thought I worked there already. So that's, that's my first job was coordinating student volunteering in Birmingham. Um, started with just me, um, ended sort of three or four years later with a team of six people doing the same work. So we kind of really built it up and fundraised. And um, a lot of that was about empowering students to be the leaders. So going out into the wider community of Birmingham and, and having students running projects and them coming to me with kind of crazy ideas and me helping them to make it happen. Um, a couple of those things ended up becoming national charities and various other things and there's something really amazing about working with students and young people as leaders because they're just like naive enough to think they can change the world now <laughs> and it's like yeah let's get on with it you know so, so I love that time and then I um, got the job running the national charity that supports student volunteering which is called Student Volunteering England at the time um, we might talk about this a bit later but um, 
my reflection of the charity sector over the last 20 years is like there's a lot of kind of um, small fish getting gobbled by bigger fish getting gobbled by bigger fish. So student volunteering became part of Volunteering England as part of a merger just at the end of my time there. Um, and that was kind of exciting and a bit painful. And maybe we'll talk about that a bit more. Um, and then volunteering even got gobbled by NCBO. And, you know, so it's like, and, and seeing what's happened in the wider kind of youth sector over the last few years, it kind of feels like that's a big um, sort of shift from the halcyon days when there was government money for these kind of things. Um, but yeah, so I, so I um, worked at Student Volunteering England for, for about three or four years. And then um, at the end of that went freelance. And the great thing about Student Volunteering England was that we were a small charity. We had this huge um, influence. So there was only about 10 of us. But literally in my first week, the phone on my desk rang. And it was like, this is the Department of Education. The minister wants to see you. And that was sort of like my time there. So really small charity, but really big kind of impact and reach. And, um, and so I, I could, with this amazing team of 10 people, sit at my desk, have ideas and then just kind of blurt these ideas out to the world. And this team of people would pick these ideas up and stuff would happen and it would be, it would be amazing. Um, and then I went freelance with the idea of working mainly around youth leadership and with charities and doing strategy and that kind of thing. And I remember that one of the first weeks of doing that, I was sat at my desk and I started to have these ideas. And I looked around and realised that I was in the spare bedroom of my flat in Whitechapel. And it was like, oh, I don't have a team anymore. I'm freelance. I'm on my own. And that's really where Productivity Ninja came from, was me recognising that my own skills, because I'd gone into sort of leadership roles quite quickly, I'd sort of bypassed the hard toil of middle management, don't hate me. Um, <laughs> but like, basically because that happened, um, I was not good at following things through and detail and being a computer finisher and all these skills that are like so vital. And I just realised I needed to learn them. So I spent three or four years just reading and kind of devouring everything I could find on the psychology of procrastination and productivity and organisation and all this kind of stuff. And, and then just really started to, to develop my own systems around that, you know, picking best bits from other books I'd read and all this kind of stuff, just coming, in, coming up with like my own way of doing it. Um, and that just became Productivity Ninja. It became Think Productive First, uh, which we started in 2008, 2009. Um, and then over the years, a couple of years after that, I realized that the best way to sell workshops into businesses is to have a book. So I wrote a book, so it was my business card, and then the book became a bestseller. Like, I love writing books, so I kind of went down that track a bit. Um, but yeah, we've now got offices in the UK, uh, one in Western Europe, one in Sydney, and one in North America, based just outside Toronto. Um, so we're kind of, you know, on this kind of global mission, really, to help people to you know, the, the sort of uh, tagline of, of the book is worry less, achieve more, love what you do. Um, and I really feel like that's the core part of what we do is recognising that out there there's just a whole just a whole heap of like really inefficient stress. And it just feels criminal to me that, um, you know, people are going about really meaningful work but in a really stressed manner, in a really stressed way. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we teach really is about how to help people to to think about work in different ways and it's for me it's the psychology is much more important than, than the technology um, and so that's really what we do and and so I'm in this kind of weird position now where on some so I've got an MD that runs the day-to-day -day business of the UK company so I'm still a, I was thinking about this leadership right so I'm still a leader in the sense that there's a whole bunch of people around the world and there's I'm very conscious of founder syndrome and I think that plays a big sort of role in my style as a leader now. Like I basically, as much as I can, try and get out of the way, but then also know that there's times where I need to make little interventions or little things that, that are really important. Um, but then I'm also, I guess, as sort of, you know, if people read the book and change something, then that's kind of leadership, but it doesn't feel, it sort of, to me, doesn't feel as, um, uh, I don't know, it's valuable or something. There's, there's some, it's something different about it and it doesn't quite feel like as authentic because it's like, oh, I just put some ideas in the book. I'm not doing the leadership, you're doing the leadership then. It just kind of feels different. Um, but yeah, so that's, I guess that's been like the leadership um, journey for me. And um, yeah, and then now, the, and the, the other thing I suppose is that uh, a lot, I guess one of the other ways I lead now is through the podcast as well, Beyond Busy, which we're recording this for. Um, so that's just a real thrill when people have read the book or uh, listened to the podcast and they take something out of that just in terms of like a leadership story or something and then they email me going, oh, I've changed this because of this. And it's like, that's a real thrill because I've never met you, 
and I don't have to line manage you, but something <laughs> good happens, so that's really cool. <laughs> and trusteeships as well, right? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I'm in a place of, I did, um, so I was a, a trustee of Centrepoint for nine years, uh, which is the maximum length of time you can be a trustee of Centrepoint for. I would definitely have carried on uh, if I could have done. Um, and I was chair of um, a charity called Read International, which, again, was one of those ones that kind of grew out of the student uh, movement. It was started with one guy realising that the, the uh, curriculum in Tanzania was pretty similar to the UK curriculum. And every two years, they throw all the textbooks from UK schools into landfill because they've changed the curriculum by like 4%. And so he just hired a shipping container, like you do when you're 19 and in Nottingham. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, and so that became this um, this huge national charity. Um, so I kind of was with that pretty much from the start and chaired that. Um, and then I've got a son who is six and has autism. So when I stepped down from centre point, everyone was saying, you're going to be a trustee of something else. I said, for a few years, I'm going to trust, be a trustee of my son. <laughs> so I'm not on a board right now, um, but hope to definitely come back to that. Great. So... Most people in this audience are leading. They're leading in different um, roles in different organisations. Um, and I think, and in charities and social enterprises, I think I can speak to, for most people when I say we're busy. I'm definitely um, a corporate saying I'm very busy, very busy. Um, in your opinion, why is productivity, work-life balance and focusing on things like happiness important, especially for people working for positive um, kind of social change? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing about working in this sector, and I always, I always used to think this with um, volunteering, is that if you're managing volunteers, it's sort of an infinite, it's like an infinite game, is it? Like, there's an infinite amount of good that you can do. If I put one more hour here and get one more person volunteering, then that produces another 50 hours. So, you know, there's, there's this kind of guilt factor for me of, like, I could be doing more good in the world. And I think... People have that in all sectors, but you probably would have that more and should have that more if you work in the social sector. Right? Like for me, it just feels like that work is so vital. Um, so I've definitely had periods in my working life where it's been, where I've been so busy and been pushing myself so hard that you end up, you know, you're in the office on a Saturday just trying to hack through emails and all that sort of stuff. And it, and it just feels like it's kind of like a never ending thing. So I remember I did some coaching a couple of years ago um, with this amazing woman who I'd met in a co-working space in New York. I was on this book tour and she kind of sought me out and she said, productivity, I need this so much. And we sat and chatted for about half an hour and she was doing amazing work, but she was that close to having a breakdown. You could see it in her face. Um, and she sort of half broke down in front of me and I said, the world needs you at your best for the next 30 years not just you know caning yourself for the next two weeks and she was like oh yeah and it was just like you know that was a really obvious thing for me to say but it felt like because she was in it she couldn't see it right um so for me I just feel it's like it's such a vital thing um to sort of think about productivity not just as how do I go faster on a hamster wheel or how do I how do I produce more output but it's also about me creating impact alongside having a good work-life balance and feeling happy. And so Beyond Busy, the podcast is kind of really about exploring the tensions between those three things, like happiness, work-life balance, productivity, right? It kind of feels like people mm. tread on one to get to another. Um, there's some really interesting research. Do you guys know Action for Happiness? Mm -hmm. um, so they have this really nice like evidence-based framework for how to be happy and with like these 10 steps of happiness. And one of the things they uncovered in the research is that the relationship between productivity and happiness is the other way around to how most people see it. So most people see it that like, if I just really slog my guts out and just carry on being productive, if I carry on doing that and just wait, at some point happiness arrives, right? That's kind of how we sort of view work often. And actually what the research finds is it's totally the opposite. Flip, flip it totally around. So... The happier you are, the more productive you are. The happier you are, the better the, the output work is. So from that point of view, I've always had this, um, you know, real focus on that. In you know, when I've been leading people, managing people, working with people, which is like focus on the happiness bit first. And if you do that, then you'll be less stressed, and then productivity kind of looks after itself. Really, like there's plenty of stuff you can do to make it better. 
Um, but you're, you're in a much better place to start if you're already happy and you've already got work-life balance. And um, I think the crime for me is how many people say, oh, I'll do that in two weeks. You know, in two weeks, everything will calm down. It's a complete fallacy. Like, you've got to do it now. <laughs> and um, so you've got experience across lots of different sectors. From your position, does it does each look different? Are there different challenges or is it fairly similar? Um, I think the thing I the thing I always used to think when I worked in the social sector is I would have this is probably my own sort of uh, biases and stuff. Whenever I used to work with with sponsors and funders who were corporate sector, I was always a bit scared of them when I worked in the charity sector, and I always thought those guys are way more serious than me and, you know, more commercial and all this kind of stuff. And I, I can tell you from the other side, if you've uh, not been into, uh, you know, Google and Facebook and, uh, well, the Gates Managed Charity, but, you know, all, all these different organisations that we work with, everyone's the same, like totally the same. And also, um, I think some of the best leaders I've ever worked with are in this sector. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think... They're more values driven and they're working with a much um, more constrained set of resources that I think just produces more ingenuity. It's actually quite easy to be a leader in an organization with too much money. Just is, right? So for me, I feel like um, there's actually a much, uh, yeah, like I, like I think I, you know, I, I would say that I definitely had a bit of an inferiority complex about the charity sector versus the corporate sector when I was in the charity sector. And like that totally went when I started working across sectors. I just think everyone's the same, ultimately. And I think, you know, in terms of leadership, I think actually the charity sector and public sector are probably a little bit, for the last few years, have probably been like a little bit ahead. And I think some of the corporate sector world is kind of catching up with that, just in terms of like leadership programs and curriculum and some of that stuff. Um, I think actually sometimes public sector and, and voluntary sector can actually be slightly ahead of the game with some of that stuff as well. Yeah. Great. So you talk about having an intolerance um, for failure, but also talk about things like happiness. Um, <coughs> and I think the advice about achieving those things can sometimes feel a bit contradictory. So you talked about that, like the kind of three bits of the triangle and how they feel sometimes a bit like they're contradicting. Um, which of these were most important in your leadership journey or... Would you pick something else, like a personal trait, um, values, attitudes, skills? Like, I don't know if you had something that you would say was most important if you look back over your journey. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I do, I do think um, having a focus on the holistic person, happiness, uh, some kind of uh, way of being clear with yourself or with the people that you're working with about what a success looked like for you and for them. Like, I think that that really, like, for me, that, that kind of really matters. Um, I always sort of had this little phrase that I've used a lot with people I've managed, um, which is uh, people first, work second, always. And what happens is when someone sends me that text and it's like, someone in my family is really ill, I need to be away for three days, or I've just been to the doctors, you know, all those kind of things that come up. Um, I'll often reply in more detail, but I'll always include in the message, people first, work second, always. And the always is the most important word in that phrase, right? So for me, that's about saying, no matter what we've got going on in terms of, you know, the day-to-day -day running of the business or the big project that's whatever, like the job, I, I see the job of the organization and the job of the leaders within that organization is to cover everyone's backs when those things are happening. Mm -hmm. Like I take, you know, the, the downside of that is I take trust in each other as just the given. And that's about hiring. Um, and it's also, you know, bluntly about firing as well. I think that's one thing, actually, the charity sector could do more of is fire some people. Um, if I'm like really honest, <coughs> there was like this weird... <coughs> assumption when I worked in the charity sector which is that uh you, like there's some law there's like a mystical law that means you can't fire anyone um but actually you know even if you don't fire people I just think that you know sort of uh being very strong on the performance management side of things is like that's really vital because then what you're left with is a team of people that you really like inherently trust respect have you know just have such a good 
uh, bond with leadership's really easy when you have the right people, right? I think that's that's a really important thing that I've learned. Um, but so what that that then means is that when someone does say I'm sick or this has happened or you know I need to be away for a few days, like we know that we've all got each other's backs, and you know people first, work second, always. Like that always bit is just for me like so vital. Um, the really great thing about that. I think, is that when people recognise that they've had that much trust placed in them and when they recognise how respected they've been in that moment, they pay that back tenfold. So it's actually, it's a really smart way of working as well as being a very generous, compassionate way of working. Um, but again, you know, it sort of stems really originally from just this idea that, you know, if you start with people and you start with their their general kind of happiness, then they will just be like better at their jobs and have you know and you'll have more fun in the organization as part of it so but that's probably like that's probably like the key i wouldn't say you could describe that as a value but that's probably like the key phrase for me that um just in kind of leadership and line management and that kind of thing is like really always sticks with me and resonates with me Okay, that all sounds really lovely, right? <laughs> so I recently listened to a book, read a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things. So, and it's really fascinating. So all this stuff that you hear about management and leadership, it's all about the nice things. No one ever tells you actually really how to deal with the hard things. So the hard things about hard things. So on that point, um, what does leadership look like when basically everything's going badly or not so well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this, actually. Um, so I was saying to Lulia on the phone, it's like, yeah, everyone's got their, oh, I did this and this achievement and all that sort of thing. But, like, we've all had times in um, the work that we've done when it hasn't gone so well. So I had, with Student Volunteer England, I still sort of reflect on it now, 10, 15 years later, that, yeah, probably 15 years later, uh, where it's like, you know, so we, we basically had no chance of being able to, to sustain ourselves as, you know, through trust funding and all that sort of stuff. We had a big grant from one government department, which didn't really make sense. It was the Home Office at the time, funding a sort of education infrastructure body. Um, and then the Home Office reviewed their funding and pulled all the money for us and quite a few other organisations. And it basically took us from, that was like our core funding and then we could project fund around that and we were in a really nice position. We had grown really well over a few years that I was there and then having this carpet like ripped out from under us. And so we ended up getting into talks with volunteering about merging with them. I really loved the people there. It really felt like they were going to kind of honour the work that we were doing. But like, you know, it was a really unsettling period and so we ended with having merged into volunteering England. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'd built up that I really liked was going to continue with volunteering and, and then I went freelance and I kind of watched it over that next couple of years sort of die quite a lot like a lot of those things that they'd said they were going to continue as soon as the funding went out they hadn't really fundraised to replace it and then the same thing I think happened when volunteering and merged into NCBO and I've seen this with a, a number of other organizations and so like I remember that time um, being very similar to a couple of times I've had with Think Productive with my company where um, in the last 10 years we've had to do two rounds of redundancies like one actually fairly recently like um, about six to nine months ago and one about sort of seven or eight years ago um, and in all three of those instances I just remember it A being a really hard time but B being a time where you really have to come back to first principles and what's most important and like what what are the values here and like what are the values here with the plural and then what's the value here you know like what value are we delivering and I found that as well as being like really tough on the people and tough on me um, a really useful process to go through in some ways because I think when you come out of the other side it's like you know, you come out with it, of it with like a renewed vigour. Like we just had our uh, our sort of uh, Christmas um, away day last week with our team um, in London. And like the work that's gone on in that last six months since we did those redundancies is like actually staggering. And I, I've been heads down writing another book. And to be honest, um, not paying enough attention to that stuff. And I was like, 
and this has happened, and you've done this, you've done this, all on top of the day job. Like, how on earth have you done that? And so it really feels like this this real kind of renewed vigour when you come through a really difficult period like that. And I really felt like the same was true when we were into this merger conversation. It was like, what are the actual, what are the crown jewels here that, like, have to continue? And, like, for me, with student volunteering, it was like that conference was amazing yeah. because it was, like, where everybody came and, learned from each other and and so many sparks of new organizations and ideas happened off the back of that conference and then we did some really great policy work well we were merging into an organization with great policy work and so for me it was like that conference needs to live i had a bit of a battle because i was like we should keep the name and some of my trustees and some of their trustees didn't agree because they just felt like they had too many brands already and volunteering in about 18 logos at the time um has has this often the way with these things um so i lost the battle around keeping the name and um i think that was a mistake in hindsight like i kind of feel like name is identity isn't it and um i think i should have maybe fought hard on that one um but yeah i feel like when you come through those kind of things as hard as they are um I think often it does refocus you. We did we did a couple of things financially. So this year, we had a huge sort of cash flow crisis, coincidentally around the time of the No Deal Brexit deadline. I wonder if the two are connected. Really. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things we did, it's like it's weird how like um, sort of the energies of capitalism kind of morph into like the next thing, right? It's like this kind of it will never die. Right? But it, so we did things like. We'd always build our clients um, uh, on the client's payment terms and after we'd delivered workshops. So we'd go in and do a workshop. We'd pay the person who was running the workshop on our behalf, and then we'd be on the client terms. And how it works is the bigger the company is, um, the longer the number of uh, payment days, to the point that basically my small little company is the bank for some of the biggest FTSE 100 companies in the UK. And that is just how it is as a small business. Um, but we did this like quite radical thing as part of this cash flow crisis. We were like, well, okay, so we are going to have to make two redundancies. But the thing about cash flow is why don't we flip this round and we'll just do payment when you book. So the workshop might be in six weeks' time, like the clock is ticking now. And we talked to a few other uh, sort of similar organizations to ourselves and a few of them were like, well, we do 50%, 50%. And one of them was like, we just, you know, they just when they book they pay and we have total confidence about it and we just decided to just take their lead and just said we'll do that too this is a thing that we'd been wanting to do and and telling ourselves that we couldn't do for about eight years and we did it because out of necessity and no one complained <laughs> like, at all so now we've got a really much better model of cash flow in the entire business and we only did it because our backs were against the wall and i think lots of things like that come out of these slightly difficult periods as well so you talked about that being um challenging time personally and for people in your team and again lots of nods when I said we're all busy and I'm sure that going along with being busy are things like feelings of overwhelm and um again you mentioned earlier about working for social change you feel like sometimes you need to be the superhero that does that extra hour um so what key messages, and I guess um, some of these will probably come from Productivity Ninja for those people that don't have the book, but what key messages or tools or insights have you got um, that you would share with people, one thing that they could take away from today? One thing. This is always like the podcast question that I hate. By the way. <laughs> um, so I suppose key messages from, from Productivity Ninja, I think, the, you know, the main thing that I talk about when people say what's your definition of productivity as I would say productivity is about making space for what matters I think the most astoundingly underrated tool that you all have as leaders is your own ability to think and what I don't mean by that is um, your level of intelligence but like your ability to carve out the space for quality thinking time Um, especially when stuff's busy it, it feels like you're reactive, you're on email, you know, there's all this stuff going on. But actually finding time to just get out of that space and create space to do more strategic thinking, create space to really review your list of projects, your list of actions, make sure you've got a really good sense of what's on your plate. Uh, it's much easier to know um, what your 
you know, you're dropping when the drop everything thing happens, if you know what everything looks like, if you've got a really good idea of what your plate looks like, what, you know, what's actually there, projects, actions, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the book really has um, a lot of uh, very specific, geeky, practical stuff in it about um, uh, the bit in the middle is the chord productivity model. So it's like capture and collect information, basically get everything out of your head. Uh, if you get everything out of your head, your head is free to do what your head's really good at, which is strategic thinking, um, prioritization, uh, creativity. Uh, the brain is not very good at trying to hold 20 things. If you've ever played that game that goes, I went to the shops and I bought, you'll know, right? Um, and inherently, we know our brain's not good at holding all that stuff. So get it all out of your head. Um, then organizing it. And organizing it really is about asking yourself, um, really rigid and tough questions about every single thing. So, like, if you've ever picked something up on your desk and gone, oh, I don't know what to do with that, and put it back down, <laughs> that's because you haven't organised, right? So it's like, what's, what is this value of this thing to me, this piece of paper, this idea, whatever it is? So making sure you ask yourself those questions. And there's, like, literally a flow chart in the book that just goes, you know, is it me doing it next? And, um, and then reviewing. So every morning having a little review to to kind of look at what's on your plate and pick stuff out of the day. And then every week having a much more detailed one. So for example, in my weekly review, I'll look at things like my calendar two weeks behind and my calendar three weeks ahead. And I'll challenge you right now, like look in your calendar, like you will find at least five things in the last two weeks where as you go through appointment by appointment, you're like, oh, I didn't send that person that thing. Or, oh yeah, I didn't follow up on that. And then three weeks ahead is what's the logistics ahead and what do I need to prepare for? What actions are there based on the meetings I've got and all that sort of stuff? So just doing that once a week, you feel so much more in control. Like, so I do this, um, and if you want to Google this, if you Google Think Productive Weekly Checklist, you'll get a PDF checklist um, that you can just download for free. And that's like just a sample um, of, of this checklist. It probably takes me an hour to two hours, depending on how busy I am you know, in and around that and how much kind of admin there is around that stuff. Um, but it's like the best investment of time I ever spend every week. And when I finish that process, I just feel lighter. Like I just feel way more in control. Um, just a much greater sense of just intention over the, the next few days. Um, and it's the best investment. And so that's really what I'm talking about when I was saying, you know, finding the space for really quality thinking. Um, my experience of coaching people is most people don't do that. And when people start doing that, it's a really habit, really difficult habit to adopt. But when people do, like it changes the world. So doing a weekly review, think productive weekly checklist if you just want to download the free resource. Um, and then the final part of record, capture and collect, organize, <coughs> review is do. So sometimes you have to do some work, right? That's sort of like an important part, just like lofty leadership stuff today. Um, so, um, yeah, for me, that's about recognising where procrastination comes from as much as anything. Um, you guys all know you have a lizard brain, right, which is like the amygdala. Um, for me, a lot of procrastination comes from there. And so recognising that there's this part of your brain that only cares about survival and blending in and not standing out and don't make a fool of yourself and all that like once you recognize those narratives are really strong and loud in your head because they're the evolutionary narratives um once you recognize that you can deal with procrastination in a much better way um yeah if you don't realize you have a lizard brain think about when you're in a meeting and you're about to go around the table and everyone's going to say their name right it's like it's getting around to you and you've got your say say your name and your job role and whatever, and the person next to you is talking and you're just going, don't fuck it up. <laughs> Lizard brain, right? So when you start to notice that that part of your brain is there, what you'll also notice about it is that um, all the most worthwhile things are the things that the lizard brain resists the most. So the things where you're sort of pushing the envelope a little bit, the things where you're taking a bit of a risk, the things where you're standing out because there's something that you really believe needs to change, um, that's the stuff where your lizard brain will just be like, don't do this, don't do this. So you have to kind of recognize that that narrative is so strong and it will lead you to just hold on to stuff rather than put that stuff out into the world and all kinds of stupid, irrational things. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of really important to recognize that. All of which is basically to, you know, the only thing I've learned from um, the Beyond Busy podcast, I've interviewed about 100 
very high-performing, interesting people from CEOs to clowns and comedians to creatives, all these different people. The only conclusion of all of that is that humans are weird. <laughs> and just like only weirdness. I think that's, you know, that's, that's the main message, I think. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I think also from the book, for me, something that was... Uh, made a shift was about the difference between attention and time. I think that's another key message that I took um, about focusing on the, it's not about time anymore, it's about where you put your attention and intention, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So attention management, if you think about a lot of the books that do the rounds around time management, you know, One Minute Manager, Seven Habits, all those kind of books, they're written really in an age where information overload looks like six pieces of A4 paper in a pigeonhole at 9am, right? So the difference now is that 24-7 information, you can't just have your information arrive at the start of the day, write a to-do list based on that, and then work in isolation. Like, it's about how you how you kind of tune in and tune out of all those different kind of information sources all through the day. So, yeah, attention management rather than time management. The other thing about attention is um, not... Like, it's often said that, you know, time is the greatest leveller and everyone has the same number of hours in the day and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's actually not true with attention. So attention is a much more precious resource than time. So think about the hour of attention that you have between 11 and 12 on a Monday when you've rested for the weekend and you're switched on or whatever versus that hour of time, 4 to 5 p.m. on a Thursday or Friday, right? So using your best attention when you have your best energy... For me, like that's the game with productivity. If you can, um, if you can use that two to three hours of proactive attention, where you have that best energy every day, um, the rest of your time looks after itself. Um, but most people spend that time, two to three hours uh, of proactive attention a day, in someone else's boring meeting um, or doing emails. You know, lots of stuff that you can do anytime. Um, but prioritizing that time for what. Cal Newport talks about as the deep work, you know, the stuff where you really need, you know, focus to add value and, you know, you really need to be fully concentrating. Um, that's the stuff that I think um, is very easily missed. And particularly when you've got lots of demands of people and it's very easy to just get pulled into wanting to help people, you know, 24-7. But sometimes you have to kind of... What's nice about having a surgery time or an open-door policy is you get to close the door. And I think people need to get better generally at working out the times of the day for them to close the door physically or metaphorically but so that you can really get, kind of get that deep work and kind of deep focus amazing thank you they're all my questions so i'm going to open out the questions to the audience so um if you want to say whether you if you don't want your question included um you can say that before but is there anyone that's got a question for brian you know, I talked about a lot about individual leadership. Uh, we do some work at the moment, a book around um, team leadership. We spoke to Lou about it. Have you, have you got any observations about um, what the traits of a productive team? Productive team. Do you just say what that question was? <coughs> yeah, so um, a question about, we talked quite a lot about individual leadership. So, kind of what makes successful individual leadership, but what about team? So, are there any traits or any um, things that Graham might be able to say that he thinks makes a productive, successful team? Thank you. Yeah, I think the main thing I'd want to say about that is it slightly comes back to the thing I was saying before about. I think when, when you have trust and everyone has each other's backs, I think mm. stuff gets easier. And then, so the question then becomes, like, how do you create that in a team? Um, I, I worked quite a lot with Fiona Dorr, who used to run YouthNet. I don't know if anyone's come across Fiona Dorr. She worked at Volunteering England before. Um, and she used to do a lot of stuff that was based on Nancy Klein's book, um, The Thinking Environment. Um, and that, for me, was, like, hugely influential. I, I mean, that book's amazing, The Thinking Environment. Um, but Fiona Dorr was a very uh, inspirational leader uh, in the way that she would set up meetings and the way she would just do the small stuff really well. So every meeting with her would start with an opening round. And the opening round was basically like, just everybody share one thing that's going well. And I once said to her, why do you always do that? Like start every meeting. And she said, the thing is, you've got to begin with a positive reality. And you've got to begin with everybody having already spoken. Because what you don't want is somebody who's in the room and their first contribution is going to be something contentious or important. And they're biting their tongue because they haven't spoken yet and they feel a bit... So you've got to like open the flow a little bit at the beginning. So 
Um, just one positive, one thing that's going well. Oh, you know, my football team won on Saturday. Great, right, move on. But just, you know, just it connects you with everybody else in the room on different levels. So some of the, some of its works, so some of its personal. And then she'd always end a meeting with the same process, but the, the idea at the end would be, um, the contribution at the end would be one thing that you valued and one thing you're looking forward to. And that was huge because it was like, what you valued is about how you've connected as a team in that space. And so it just reinforces all the positivity. So it means the next time you get together, you're already like slightly more bonded. And then one thing you're looking forward to is like sort of action orientated, like taking that to the next level. And like just those two simple things. And she did lots of other stuff as well. But like I've, I really took those two things from her um, and I just use them all the time when I'm with my team or in or in, a, or in a other organisations for the day and I'm a facilitator or something. It's like just using those kind of little techniques, um, really huge. And I, I think it's like a lot of it for me comes down to, um, I mean, really a lot of that is about creating trust and empathy. And, you know, for me, that's like such the fluid of, of like, you know, work transactions, business transactions, it's like it's all got to be about trust, right? I did a thing at an investment bank. Um, they had an offsite. They flew everybody to Rome. It was really lovely. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the thing. I never got into charity world. We put up in a five-star hotel in Rome, yeah. Um, but uh, there was this whole thing about um, should should we try and be nice and how, how much should we accommodate each other when really we, it's all about trading and it's all about this. And um, the leader of this team stood up and said, it's actually all about, um, you know, being humble. His two values were be humble, work hard. And I was like, I like you. Like, this is like, I, you know, this is, really speaks to me. Um, and he was really trying to push this humility point. And this woman stood up and she said, uh, well, I think we should all basically be bastards, right? <laughs> she was like, you need to, you know, make an omelette, crack some eggs, all that stuff. And it was like, Actually, when you look at leadership, um, you know, all the people that succeed are people like Steve Jobs, who are real utter bastards to everybody, and everyone cries and leaves the room, but they get stuff done and all this. And I was just on stage, and so it was like this Q&A, and the, the, um, the leader of the team had spoken. Then she'd thrown me that curveball, and I'm just on stage in front of 100 people just going, what am I going to do? And I don't know where it came from, but I just went on this like really passionate diatribe about, well, for every Steve Jobs, there's a Bill Gates. And Bill Gates was widely respected by his team. And he's about to cure malaria. So how about that? You know? <laughs> right. uh, and then, you know, and what was the other example? Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, and I said, well, for every Wolf of Wall Street, there's a Warren Buffett who's had the same team of people around him for 30 years because he's such a lovely, cuddly man. And uh, he also just has really amazing ideas and people want to be around him because he's nice and interesting and whatever. And it's like, there are different ways of, of doing this. And, and it just really got me thinking about how all the narratives about like the evil, uh, you know, sort of bad business person. Why is it, why has it become such a strong narrative? Because it's the outlier, right? Because it's not how most people behave. And most people don't get very far if you do behave like that because people find you out and don't want to work with you very, very quickly. Um, I interviewed Nick Jenkins on the podcast, who was one of the dragons on Dragon's Den for a season. He was the founder of Moonpig. Um, and I said to him at the end of the interview, sadly, I'd stopped recording, but I said at the end of the interview, um, it felt to me on Dragon's Den like you were really trying to be the nice one. Like every time you didn't invest, you would give really good advice to that person to go away and change their business or whatever. <coughs> was that a deliberate strategy? And he said, no, it's just how I've always worked in business and it's why I'm successful. You know, it's because I'm nice to be one and they're the nice pack. Um, and then what's interesting is that doesn't work on that show because what people want is Alan Sugar, rah, 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 and, you know, and, 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 it, and that narrative of you've got to be evil to succeed. So, yeah, I'm thinking of basically just doing a whole book on that and for me, it's like, you know, trust and empathy are at the heart of that because when you're nice, then it's much easier to, uh, you know, to get somebody to um, open up to you and for you to connect with them on a deeper level. I, think, I just think that's so important. Thank you. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I'll make the other answers a bit shorter. <laughs> Very simple question, really. Um, going back to the sort of idea of meetings and whether they're productive or not. 
I mean, there tends to be, I think, a sort of feeling these days that meetings are a bore and a chore and, and they're not productive. Um, I tend to get frustrated a little bit in, my, in the workplace where there's endless email strained discussions. I just want to say, let's just get around the table and sort it out face to face. And there's a sort of tension there between people going, well, you know, we'll just, we'll just talk for an hour or two hours. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but if we carry on like this... <laughs> So is there a sort of, um, I don't know, a, a, what's the perfect way of making meetings as productive as possible, I suppose, but also tackling that sort of view, that world view of, you know, meetings are no longer where it's at? Yeah, it's the same with, um, so meetings are just a medium, just like the phone is a medium and email is a medium and <coughs> Slack or instant messenger is a medium. So it's always a horses for courses thing about which medium is best. Um, I think there are some good sort of, principles and ground rules around meetings because the thing about meetings is the reason people push back against them is they're a very expensive medium like getting everybody around the table just the time of that is expensive you know just when you start to think about the other things they could have been doing if they used that time for an hour of, of deep work all of those 10 people or whatever so it's an expensive thing but it's also for me um i think i think of it in a kind of yin and yang kind of way like you kind of need the yin energy of being receptive and listening and meetings are just so superior to get to that versus email or anything else um uh i'll another thing about that in a minute um but and then you also need the 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 yang energy which is like don't have loads of meetings just you know get the stuff done so you kind of need to like like almost like walk a tightrope through the middle of that which is like you have to have some meetings otherwise it falls apart and you have to have not too many meetings otherwise you just spend all your time thinking about stuff rather than doing stuff so for me that's like the big tension and, and then I think it comes down to like the ground rules of how you set up the culture of meetings one thing I'd say is never accept a meeting request um, unless you have an agenda and the best practice is never expect never accept a meeting request unless there's a purpose statement and the purpose statement is a really simple thing. By the end of this meeting, we will have, or, you know, the purpose of this meeting is to, you know, and so just having some verbs in there and some real specifics in there. Um, so not accepting meeting requests unless those things are in place. And for me also, on a sort of personal survival level, booking some time in your diary uh, that is protected from those meetings. So if you know that your best working hours are kind of 10 to 1 or something, Put that in your diary. And if, if you put that as thinking time and people start booking over it, just change it to Project Magenta. Right? <laughs> and then when people look at that and they see in your Outlook Project Magenta, they don't know what Project Magenta is. They just assume it's really important. They leave you alone. <laughs> um, but I think you have to have um, the right culture around that. And what's interesting about that is that I think you only, you, you, you only really have to have one or two of the key leaders or influencers in an organisation doing meetings in a good way to see that like massively filter down like Fiona Dora at YouthNet every meeting at YouthNet followed that sort of model and, and formula um, Stuart Etherington I did quite a bit of work with NCBO a few years ago and his meeting style was very different to Fiona Dora's as you can well imagine like so you walk into a meeting with Stuart Edrington and they'd be like, right, welcome everybody. I assume you've read all the stuff, but it kind of, you know, it did translate across the organisation where that was just the expectation that you turned up having been prepared and read the stuff and whatever. And I think, you know, you, do, you only need a small number of those influences to be doing it in a good way for that organisation, for that to, to really kind of like filter through. Um, but yeah, and then for me, being slightly unorthodox about, uh, meetings is a really good way to, to break the monotony as well. So uh, next time you send an invite out, send it for a 42-minute meeting rather than an hour meeting. Why are all meetings an hour? Because Outlook tells us. <laughs> you know, it's all those little things that I think just just make the mundane more interesting. I think for me that's um, that's a good way of, of solving some of that cynicism as well. But yeah, like I'm <coughs> totally with you. Sometimes it's just way quicker and easier to get people around the table. The other thing I was going to mention about the yin and yang and different communication styles and stuff... One of the, this is something I'm using all the time now, and it's really cut down on how I use um, both email and the phone, is WhatsApp voice. So me and Elena, my MD, communicate almost exclusively by WhatsApp voice. So sending little voice memos, like voicemail memos. Um, it's so quick and easy, but the great thing about it is that we hear each other's tone of voice, mm -hmm. which obviously on email you don't. And on email it's so flat as a medium that 
you don't necessarily know whether this is the most important thing that you're sending me today or whether it's just a little harebrained thought that Graham's had, right? Like, it happens a lot. So just, you know, I can put that out there on the WhatsApp voice and say, this is probably nothing, but like, oh, yeah, just a thought. Anyway, you know, it's so different to, like, an email which ends with just a thought. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? So I'm, I'm using that a lot because I just think it's a richer format for kind of human connection. Great. Yes, so I recently joined a volunteer um, and I realized that uh, some people really work hard. They really want to make a good things out of their work, but some people came with different purpose to Ooh. make their CV nice. <laughs> right. So um, I don't know how you motivate those young volunteers and um, because they obviously came with a different purpose and you don't have financial rewards so they tend to do what they told and not to do more yeah i would say that trustees, it's, trustees yeah, yeah. <laughs> hands up who's got a trustee on your board who's a bit like that and <laughs> um, i mean i think the the answer sort of is within your question which is that they're there to make their cv nice right so are there some things that you can persuade them to take on that are, you know, the, the kind of tasks that will buy them experiences or, like, make them look more impressive on the CV or whatever. Like, you know, I think volunteering for me is, like, such a... Like, it's su- it, like it's su- it can be such an amazing professional learning space. I mean, the thing about student volunteers is I literally had 19-year-olds, like, running teams, fundraising coordinating incredible logistics and it's no coincidence that a lot of the people that I knew in that world are now doing amazing things you know out in big companies big charities big organizations one of them is that right here um but you know for me um when you get that kind of experience like you just you can't buy that I mean it would take you five or ten years in a you know in a corporate job or in a charity job to be put in that position of responsibility and it's kind of like a safe space to make mistakes you know often volunteering because you've got a support network around you there's a team of people that are sort of supervising the activity and all that sort of stuff as well so you know for me it's like a really you know like it's a really kind of magical space for you know sort of personal development career development stuff and um i know sometimes that becomes the point and it shouldn't um but it's definitely a very high level setting point of volunteering for me. Um, I guess what what is the one thing you think for one or three, however many, but <laughs> you think uh, corporates do a lot better than charities at and that charities do a lot better at corporate like what could we learn from each other, I guess mm. the top kind of takeaways from each That's good. Uh, huh. um, I think that what corporates can learn from charities um is a couple of things. So one would be the it, the ingenuity of thought to be able to be able to deliver stuff with just no resources. Um, you'd be amazed at just the money that sloshes around certain corporates and doesn't get used very well. Um, and to be honest, I I just don't see that level of of sort of waste or. Um, frivolousness in the charity world so I think that's definitely one thing Um, I think something about articulation of values it feels to me that more more charities have a handle on um, either sort of personal leadership values or living out the values that are on the the website or you know the company sort of charity value statement versus in the corporate world it's like what are our values transparency honesty you know it's like it's a little bit vague and it doesn't necessarily um relate relate as much across the board um what do corporates do better i mean you know i i I do think there's um a more uh rigid focus within corporates often on like bottom line performance i don't just mean money in, in those terms like i just mean the way they the way they manage people and manage performance um, for me can be like uh, a little bit more scary than most charities I've seen or worked in. Um, and so, you know, maybe just a little bit of that kind of slightly more 
um, like focus on the main thing being the main thing would be the uh, thing that corporates could do. But I'll reiterate what I said, you know, towards the beginning, which is that um, I think there's just less of a difference than uh, than I ever thought when I worked in charities. And I always thought that the people in corporates were, you know, these kind of scary people in suits who, you know, seemed like much more serious and whatever. Um, and actually, I just think there's really, there's really good people in both. Um, there's really mediocre people in both too. Uh, and, uh, I, and I think over the years, I've kind of realised that what matters more is just how the organisations are set up rather than really what their sort of financial... Uh, model is or whatever it's like much more about the leadership much more about the culture who you've got working there that kind of matters more than what sex they're in I guess. amazing thank you i'm going to bring it to a close um we've got a couple more messages but i think hopefully you've taken some stuff away today um maybe look at the cord model if you're looking for some inspiration <coughs> for how to kind of organize um and think about your attention and um where you put that and where you're most productive in your day I've got um, books as well so Grace got some books for anyone who <laughs> might be interested um, in taking a look at the book you've also got Masterclass yeah on. so I've got two books um, which I've brought some copies of um, for sale so I've got Productivity Ninja which is the main book and then I also wrote um, we released it in January this book called Work Fuel which is basically how to eat to have the best level of energy for work mm-hmm. um, and it's specifically aimed at busy people as well so there's like literally like a chapter on how to travel and um, how to eat well on planes and all that sort of stuff um, and it was written with a nutritionist and it was based around me having very low levels of energy changing my diet and it, and it really having this kind of huge effect Great Thank you for being an awesome audience um, Hopefully we'll get to listen to this back on the Beyond Busy podcast um, Time for networking now so I'll bring this to a close and thank you very so much for today So thanks to Lou for suggesting that. That was her idea. Um, And honestly, it was just a real privilege to do that. And um, lovely to work with the team at Claw. Thanks to Lou and Lulia and Nadia uh, to meet up with a lot of people from the the world of charities and social enterprises who I don't see that much, but um, just do really great work and are really good people. Um, shout out to, to Joe Gibney and many others. And um, yeah, just really fun to do. And I hope you got some value from that. A couple of things I want to share before I finish. So um, one thing I want to just share with you is my son, Roscoe, who's six and has autism, amongst some other things. Uh, he has seen, and he can't really articulate this for himself, but I've I've certainly seen it. And I think he has too. He's seen the world kind of adjust to his pace of life and his his kind of preferences for things, basically. So when he goes in shops, no one's in his face like they were before. When he walks to school, he's still at school three three days a week because he's classed as vulnerable. Um, When he walks to school, it's really quiet. He has the playground to himself, basically. All his favourite adults are still around and they've got more time for him. We've seen this huge progress and improvement in his reading and writing in the last few weeks. And uh, actually his ability to type words and sentences, which has just sort of come out of nowhere. But he's suddenly obsessed with typing and, and really enjoying getting on my laptop and destroying my <laughs> destroying my, all my work file and all the rest of it. But it's been really interesting just seeing how the world has accidentally adjusted to his uh, way of life and his kind of cognitive preferences and you know there's something really interesting about that because it just shows you how there may well be opportunities for lots more of that kind of thing um, as we sort of head out of lockdown and back to normal at some point the other thing that I think is really pertinent to right now and I touched on this quite a bit in that conversation I'm a big believer in kindness and trust as being really the best way to do business. I think great teams work on on empathy and autonomy and connectivity and, and all of that really comes through having trust and, you know, 
um, kindness for me is such a, an important route towards, um, you know, building trust in teams and building trust amongst people. And so for me, there's just something really interesting about how when we're seeing communities reaching out to each other and people knowing their neighbours and people really asking themselves, how can I help in a much bigger way than they do normally, then that I think tells us that there's there's likely to be some kind of shift when we take all this stuff back to our offices because we will be affected by these experiences. So that's just really interesting to me. And I think it's worth us starting to think about how that might reflect on a new way of working. It's also really pertinent to this podcast because this podcast is all about challenging the notion of busy and thinking about those intersections, you know, work-life balance, productivity, happiness, and the tensions and intersections between those three things. So it feels like we're just in a really sweet spot right now. And um, yeah, that's not, I'm not, I'm describing the sweet spot, meaning there's the ability for change. I'm not describing the current scenario as being sweet or hunky-dory. Of course it's not. But I do think we should all start thinking about what would be the things from this response that we want to take back into our everyday lives. And when we break everything down uh, like a jigsaw in the way that we have and we start to put those pieces back together, maybe the picture starts to look different. So what is that different? And I guess the final thing to say on this is if you have ideas for things that you'd like to hear on this podcast that relate to that sort of stuff, rethinking business, rethinking busyness, taking the good bits from what's happening right now and applying them back to uh, the the wonderland that was our previous lives <laughs> with freedom and travel and <laughs> all these other things. Uh, then I'd love to hear from you. So graham at thinkproductive.co.uk or just drop me an Insta uh, DM as well. I'm just Graham Alcott on Instagram if you're not following me there. Uh, and I, yeah, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on topics for the show over the next few weeks, things that would be inspiring or interesting in the current situation that we're in. I've got loads of really good conversations with people lined up and there's a couple that I think would be really nice to put out around now anyway. But yeah, I'm also keen to use this as a little... Uh, platform to just respond to what's happening and um, hopefully spark some ideas and conversations so if you've got any thoughts on that uh, drop me a dm on insta uh, just graham Walcott or graham at thinkproductive.co.uk love to hear your thoughts um quickly before we finish just to say thanks to mark steadman my producer for the show and to podient our hosts Thanks also to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. And you can find out more at thinkproductive.com forward slash WFH if you want to find out about our free webinars and all the other stuff that we're doing for our clients around helping people working from home, leading remote teams, dealing with virtual meetings for the first time, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, check that out. We'll be back either next week or in two. I haven't quite decided, I must admit. We're, we're generally on a two-week schedule here, but given everything that else is going on, it feels like it's all up for grabs. I might go weekly. I don't know. I haven't decided. But anyway, um, let, me, let me know what you think. Love to hear your thoughts. And uh, stay safe, stay at home, and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Bye.